This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm Head of Programming, Connor Boyle. On this episode, Dr. Hannah Durkin, a historian whose new book shines a light on the final years of the Atlantic slave trade. The Clotilda was the last slave ship to land on American soil in 1860. This was despite a federal law banning the importation of captive individuals from the African continent passed over a half a century prior. Some of the survivors on board the Clotilda lived into the 20th century, a time period that feels shockingly close to our own. Speaking to Durkin for this episode is Christina Fryer, the historian and broadcaster with a focus on modern Britain, the British Empire and modern Caribbean. Fryer grew up in southeastern Virginia and has worked for universities in locations ranging from North Carolina to Liverpool. Most recently, she was a lecturer in Black British History at Goldsmiths University in London. Let's join Christina Fryer now with more. Our guest today is Hannah Durkin. Hannah is a historian specializing in transatlantic slavery and African diasporic art and culture. She holds a PhD in American Studies from the University of Nottingham and a postgraduate diploma in journalism from Leeds Trinity University. She is an advisor to the History Museum of Mobile, which is working to memorialize the Clotilda survivors, and was the keynote speaker at Africatown's 2021 Spirit of Our Ancestors Festival, founded by the Clotilda Descendants Association. She is the recipient of more than a dozen academic prizes, including the Lever Film Trust Early Career Fellowship. And her most recent book is Survivors, The Lost Stories of the Last Captives of the Atlantic Slave Trade. Hannah, it's great to speak with you today. Oh, it's so fantastic to speak with you. Thank you. So um, I you know, really enjoyed reading, uh, reading this book. And uh, for listeners, this book is about uh, the Clotilda uh, which was a ship that arrived in 1860. Can you tell us more about the Clotilda, who was on it, and how it arrived in uh, Alabama in 1860? Yes, so the transatlantic slave trade um, is, of course, illegal in 1860. So um, the, the British Empire outlaws its slave trade in 1807. I should say that before that, it's leading the slave trade. So in the century before it outlaws it, about 3 million people are, are trafficked across the Atlantic. So it's really at the heart of the slave trade before it ends it. 
The United States um, outlaws the slave trade the following year, and in 1820 it declares it piracy, which means that it's a capital offence. You can be executed for committing it. Um, but unfortunately, the traffic continues and the legal traffic continues. And suddenly by the 1850s, it's centred on Cuba. So in fact, um, about a quarter of all the people trafficked across the Atlantic are trafficked illegally. So they're trafficked after 1808. Um, and in Cuba, about 71% of people sent to Cuba are sent illegally. So that's more than half a million people. And so there's this, this Cuban slave trade that's going on that actually US slave ships are, are deeply implicated in, um, in this trafficking. So there's certainly a very strong awareness, certainly among Southern enslavers in the you know, 1850s, that there is that what's happening is US ships are going to West Africa, but then they're going back to Cuba. So there's this US slave trade going on, but of course most of the captives aren't being sent to the mainland United States. But what happens with the Clotilda is, well, I was quite surprised actually. Um, it was long rumoured to have been started by a bet. And they dismissed this idea. It seemed to, you know, too frivolous. It's like, these are people who are um, zealots. These are people who, who want to profit from the slave trade. This isn't a small, tiny event. You know, there's just someone thinks of it. Um, but I did find evidence of the bet because I actually found this. If you look in Mobile Public Library's archives, and actually a lot of this material is digitized. So you can just go on the internet and have a look. There's a handwritten note. It's anonymous, but it names two of the witnesses to the bet, or at least give partial names, and enough for me to identify one of them, which allowed me to work out that this bet happens in, uh, in about January 1856. Um, but it's a bigger, it's a bigger, I mean, the bet, it's so much more than just a bet though. So it's, it's basically the people who, who are involved in it want to really reopen the slave trade in the US. So, um, so it's part of a much wider project as well. I mean, I was surprised to find as well that some of the people involved in it were actually very closely connected with the secession movement and the Confederacy. So it's at the same time both start sparked by a bet, but also a larger project to, to reopen the US slave trade on the eve of the Civil War. And so what happens in 1860 is um, these, these three brothers, Timothy Mayer and his brothers Burns and James, lead this project to capture, um, and I guess to really prove that it, it's possible to traffic people directly to the United States. So in the spring of 1860, they, um, they commission a boat, a ship, um, captained by this Canadian man named William Foster to sail across the Atlantic, to sail to Weeder and Benin, present day Benin, and to traffic people. And essentially, they, they're actually going to buy children really. So most of the captives on board the Clotilda are children and very young people, all from the, as far as I can tell, all from the same town, or almost all from the same town in present-day southwest Nigeria. Um, William Foster buys 125 people, um, but only, only he's only able to board 110 of them before an anti-slave patrol almost catches him. So there are 110 people on board this ship, equally split between girls and boys, men and women. So 50% female, 50% male. Um, and they're, they're forced to board the Clotilda basically in, in the spring of 1860. So this is a moment when um, slavery is still uh, thriving really in uh, the United States, in Cuba and Brazil. 
Um, of course, uh, because this is 1860, this is a moment in which the United States is about to split apart uh, entirely over the question of, of slavery. And yet the slave trade itself was in theory illegal. But what you were what you were finding um, is that these Southerners, and in particular, these three men um, are trying to actually make an argument for restarting uh, the, the slave trade. Uh, and then they purchase all of these children in uh, what is now uh, Southern Nigeria. Um, before we go into a detail about who was on, you know, who was on board the the Clotilda, um, I was wondering what drew you to this story in particular. Yeah, so I was working on a, a, a slightly well, a connected story in some ways, but I was work. I'm really a 20th century historian, and I was working on a project on the um, on the African American writer Zora Neale Hurston. But I was actually looking her, at her film work. So she was a pioneering black woman filmmaker, perhaps the first to professionally hold a camera. Um, and she was an ethnographic filmmaker, which meant that she was documenting um, human subjects in the South. She was recording human stories. Um, and she got, travels to Florida and Alabama in the late 1920s to film um, local people um, and interview them for, to collect their folkloric stories, basically. Um, one of the people she interviews and films was a man named Kujo Lewis or Kazula, who for decades was thought to be the last Clotilda survivor and the last known Middle Passage survivor. But um, Zora Hurston mentioned in a, in a letter to her fellow writer, Langston Hughes, that she'd met another Clotilda survivor. And for a long time, uh, Hurston experts assumed this, this woman could never be identified. But I was trying to identify the people in her films. And so I turned to an early, um, basically a posthumously published uh, manuscript of Hurston's. And, in which she's, which collects these folkloric stories, and um, I noticed an appendix to this book. She named a, a woman, an African-born woman that she'd interviewed, and this woman was named Sally Smith, and that wasn't, of course, her African name. Her African name was recorded as a Radoshi, and so I, I realised that this woman was, was the person that she mentioned to that in the letter to Hughes. And so I spent a long time trying to identify this woman and tell her story as well. Um, I found she actually outlived Kazula. And I, I, I basically just kept researching. I, I didn't think I would have enough for an article, let alone a book. Um, so, But I just kept pursuing. I found another woman, the youngest survivor, outlived Radoshi, Matilda McCreer. Um, she was only two years old when she was kidnapped. And so... I wrote another article on her as well, and then it, after that, it became a book. Really, I want to pick up on some of these survivors and what you what you said earlier about the fact that um, when the um, when when the Clotilda and its captain uh, arrived in Lida, they were snatching children, and the uh, that is certainly that is a that is a horror. Um, but part of what that meant is that these people actually lived quite long lives well into the 21st century. And so there's this real wealth of information about them and their and their lives. Um, are there one or two of the survivors whose stories you could share with us now? Absolutely. So perhaps I should talk more a little bit more about Matilda McCrea. So she was two years old when she was kidnapped with her mother and well and sold to Captain William Foster. She was sold with her mother and three sisters. Her two brothers were left behind in West Africa, never to be seen again. And when she arrives in the United States with her mother and three sisters, two of her sisters are then sold away from her, and she never sees them again either. 
Her mother is forced to effectively partner with um, an, another Clotilda survivor to, to become the quote-unquote wife so that they have children to enrich their enslavers really horribly. Um, and both of those, so there's the mother, Gracie, and the stepfather, um, Guy, they both um, really die not too long after they secure their freedom. But Matilda McCrea lives until January 1940. And what's really striking about her is that she, in December 1931, somehow, so she is sent to, um, she, I mean, she's sent to Wilcox County in central Alabama, um, the cotton, cotton fields of central Alabama. Um, and she dies in Selma. In the early 1930s, she's living in a, about 15 miles outside of Selma. Some, and Kazula uh, or Kutu Lewis is in Mobile, about 150 miles south. Somehow, um, Matilda Matakria Radoshi uh, and Radoshi managed to travel down to meet with um, Kazula in, in December 1931 and to actually see the site of the Clotilda's landing. And of course, Matilda McCrea was just two years old, so she had no memory of she had no memory of the Middle Passage. She had no memory of her lost family, and um, and obviously it's such a profound experience for her that when she gets back to her home just outside Selma, fifteen miles outside Selma, she decides she's going to walk to Dallas County Courthouse to demand reparations. Essentially, so she somehow she walks fifteen miles from her home to Selma to Dallas County Courthouse. And of course, the white judge that she confronts turns her away. But what's so striking is that that courthouse is the same courthouse where voting rights campaigners gathered um, for, to, to demand their voting rights during the Sel you know, Selma voting rights campaign. And the Selma voting rights campaign leads to the passage of the Voting Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which is one of the key pieces of civil rights legislation. Um, and what's striking as well is that when they, when they, the campaigners gather at the D Dallas County Courthouse to demand their voting rights. The man that they're confronting is a man named v Victor Bethune Atkins, who for decades was Matilda McCrea's landlord and employer. So she's having to work his land. And before that, it was his father. And before that, it was his father-in-law. Um, another of the captives whose stories really stood out, and I think because probably I, 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 I'd started the book before I... I realised that she existed. Um, a woman named Bougie Moore. Uh, she she lived until 1930, and quite horribly, she was a grown woman, probably in her early 20s, who was separated from her three small children um, in on the slave port of Weaver. So her three children are left behind, and one of those children is a baby. And of course, she never sees those children again. And she's sent to uh, an estate outside Montgomery. So just outside the capital of the Confederacy. Um, but again, what's so striking about her is that she's determined to live the life of a, of a traditional um, Yoruba woman, a Yoruba woman, basically. So she's determined to live the life that she would have lived at her, back home. So she determines to become a tradeswoman, as she would have been back home, an economically independent tradeswoman. And what she does is she forages for wares outside her home. And then she travels on, a seg on segregated trains into the heart of, Mon of Montgomery. And she travels across these two streets, which are, I guess, the key streets, two key streets in Montgomery, um, which is where the, the Alabama, or, or where the Capitol building, so the state Capitol building of Alabama is. And also, it also happened to be where um, 
Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus to a white man, sparking the Montgomery bus boycott, which is a key early event in the civil rights movement. So this is essentially the same, these are the same spaces that she's, she's navigating. Um, and she lives until 1930, July 1930, and she's still traveling to Montgomery to sell her wares into 19, well, yeah, 1925. So, and she's such a visible presence in the center of Montgomery that she's she's regarded as a local celebrity. You know, journalists interviews her when she ends up in hospital in 1925. There's a story about when she gets out. So some of the Clotilda survivors were really visible. They weren't necessarily identified as Clotilda survivors um, because the Clotilda voyage was so secret, so hidden. Um, but yeah, just just incredible women, incredible men as well. So there is a lot there that I, that I really want to uh, pick up on. Um, and I think maybe the first thing I, I want to pick up on is actually what you, what you just said, which is, um, there, there's a sense and it, and it comes out, out strongly in the book. There's a sense that the survivors were, uh, quite well known at points, or some of them were, were, were quite well known, certainly well known in their communities. Um, but also at points famous, there's press coverage about some of them, uh, the Clotilda itself, when it arrived was the subject of actually quite a lot of, uh, legal and criminal proceedings that go nowhere. But, you know, there's a, there is a very clear understanding that this ship arrived in 1860 and arrived with enslaved people on it. And yet at the same time, the Clotilda has been at various points dismissed as a hoax. So how, you know, how did this happen that, that this was the, the arrival of the ship was well known and well documented at the time. Various uh, of the Clotilda survivors were documented and famous. And then there's this question of whether this event and, and these people, uh, whether this ever happened at all. How did, how, how did that transpire? Yeah, because as you say, the legal proceedings begin against them, uh, against, the, against the culprits, against the criminals, um, but they go nowhere. Uh, there's a, there's this, it's basically an open secret, really, and it's very likely that um, governmental figures uh, were aware of, of what was happening. I mean, it, it appears that actually the, um, the U.S. Marshal actually encamp- encountered them uh, soon after they landed. And of course, there's, there's an attempt to, to go after them and recover them and, and rescue them. But um, the, you know, the, the judge is suspiciously unreachable at that time. So, of course, they escape and they're scattered and... And they're sent across different places in Alabama, which doesn't help as well. Uh, this, it seems as if a, a lot of journalists, a lot of writers who encounter them are told that they're survivors of the Wanderer, which was the penultimate U.S. slave ship, which landed um, off the coast of Jekyll Island, Georgia, about 19 months before the Clotilda voyage. So there's a real attempt to, to, to pretend this, this voyage never happened. And his, a lot of historians do seem to believe that. I mean, in fairness, though, historians have, you know, the, the, the number of historians have, have worked to prove that the Clotilda voyage happened. And certainly there was Emma Langdon Roach um, about 110 years ago. And in the early 20th century, Sylvia Andrews and um, Natalie Robertson, who worked to prove that this, this voyage happened. But um, it hasn't been taken as seriously as it should have been uh, and I think certainly descendants have struggled actually to, to have their stories taken as seriously as they should have been until very recently. Until um, I think actually, so the Clotilda was identified um, in the Mobile River maybe about four years ago. 
and it felt like it, at the time archaeologists were, you know, this seemed like concrete evidence that it actually happened, that archaeologists were even struggling to say, look, this proves this happens. And, and the chief archaeologist was thanking me for identifying survivors as if that was more proof that this voyage actually happened. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. It's really that, that that's really fascinating, and um, it, you you mentioned the descendants, and it, I I got the sense that you had had worked with with some of them. Um, has it been a long struggle for them to 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 really get this story more widely known? Yeah, I think it's an ongoing an ongoing struggle as well. I think they're working to to really have Africa Town, which is the community established by Clotilda survivors and Mobile, taken seriously and recognised as important space in the United States. And I think that's an ongoing battle to, I mean, they've done, you know, done incredible work, but to make sure that it's in the public eye all the time. Um, and as well, what I was finding as well was, uh, what was striking is that Clotilda survivors I was speaking to didn't always know that they were descendants. So even, even Johnny Creer, who's the grandson of Matilda McCreer, he knew his grandmother was African born but he didn't know it was the Clotilda that she that arrived on until until I told him that. So I'm also aware, very aware of the fact that because I was identifying Clotilda survivors as I was writing the book, there'll be a lot more descendants who don't yet know the descendants of Clotilda survivors. I mean Johnny McCree I mean Johnny Creer, sorry, he doesn't use the muck like his grandmother did, but um he was saying that he attempted to encount the number of descendants that Matilda McCreer has. And he lost count when he got to about 140. So actually, might have a thousand, or and that's just one survivor, of course. Um, so hopefully, I can, you know, this book will help more people connect to their to their ancestor stories. There's so one thing I want to pick up on is um, so these are the, these were people um, who, as you mentioned, they came from uh, what is now uh, southern Nigeria. They were Yoruba, um, and identity is such an important part of this story. Um, how did the Clotilda survivors hang on to their Yoruba uh, identity at the same time that they and their descendants were becoming African-American citizens? Yeah, I think it was a real struggle because, of course, of the, the prejudices towards and the internalized prejudices towards um, African cultures and communities. They're so demonized. They're so um, dismissed. So when the Clotilda survivors arrived, they're laughed at because they practice um, Yoruba traditions, right? So they attempt to keep alive their, yeah, their, their cultural and religious beliefs, but it's very hard for them. So they they actually end up converting to Christianity in the late 1890s. 
Um, that actually might partly have been because they actually met um, a missionary who could speak their language at that time, and he actually fights to try to take them home. Uh, but there's no money for them to go home, very sadly. Um, but there's so many different ways in which they hold on to their heritage. I, mean, I, was, I, was, I was exploring, I did, you know, did a lot of work to explore. There was a long-rumoured connection between the Clotilda survivors and the Jeeves Bend quilters. Now, the Jeeves Bend quilters are a celebrated community of, of quilters, of artists in central Alabama. So in, in Wilcox County, which, just around, which was just around where Matilda McCrea came from, very close to where she came from, and Radoshi as well. And, and I was struck by the number of connections between that community. There was also the Freedom Quilting Bee, which was a, 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 an overlapping uh, quilting cooperative that was set up by civil rights leaders, uh, civil rights um, campaigners in the, 18, uh, in the 1960s. And the, those, the, that community, the Freedom Quilting Bee community, the spaces that they they occupied where the where the women quilters lived matches quite closely to where Clotilda survivors were sent. So they are um, upholding um, West African um, cultural and artistic practices. And so the Jeeves Bend quilts were long rumoured to be influenced by strip weaving. Uh, so this West African um, artistic tradition in which strips of cloth are so stitched together into single into a single fabric. So there are these striking connections here. Um, and also as well, I was talking quite recently to a great-great-granddaughter of Radoshi, and she was telling me that she obviously doesn't remember her ancestor, but her father did. Her father grew up alongside her. And she was telling me that, you know, the food was, was so different and so and obviously very popular. And also she had some kind of farming practices now, she couldn't remember what they were, didn't quite understand what they were. But these farming practices were influential, helped the community in which she was part. So they're bringing all kinds of artistic, um, religious, um, and you know, um, and also agricultural practices that are influencing Alabama, basically, well into the 20th century and even into the 21st. Mm -hmm. And of course, quilting is such an important part of African American culture. Yeah. Um, that that this more recent uh, connection to to Yoruba traditions, uh, it was such an such an important part of the book. I thought. Um, there's and you've you've been talking about this, but I think there's a really powerful argument in the books that this is actually a recent history, as opposed to this idea that um, you know this the slave trade was centuries ago. You really are insisting that this is a recent history and. For me personally, uh, as a, as a millennial, um, uh, one of the things that I noticed is actually that the last of the Clotilda survivors, Matilda, died four years after my father was born in the Jim Crow South. So even just that overlap again really pulls this into into the present. Um, and there, one of the ways that you give us this sense of urgency and recency is by connecting the story to the civil rights movement. Why was it so important for you to do that? And what are some of the connections uh, you found? You've already mentioned a few, but I want, want, want to hear if there are more that we should be picking up on. Yeah, I think it's important to show actually just how how influential they were in their communities. I mean, they, these are people who who knew and possibly even influenced civil rights leaders. So Rodoshi, the penultimate Clitilda survivor, um, was friends in the 1930s with um, a woman named Amelia Boynton Robinson. Now, Amelia Boynton Robinson refers in her memoir to Radoshi, you know, encounters with Radoshi as among her richest experiences, those are her words, richest experiences in the 1930s. 
an immediate point in Robertson is part of this 30-year voting rights campaign in, an, in Dallas County, in and around Selma, basically. So she's such an important figure in the civil rights movement. She actually invites Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to Selma um, in, in 1963, which basically leads to the Selma to Montgomery marches, or you know, leads him to be part of those. Um, and the Selma to Montgomery marches at, you know, again lead to the 1960, the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. So that's such a, so that um, so that's a, such an important part of the civil rights movement story. Also, going back to you know to Buja Moore, um, she was um, she was walking these spaces that obviously that connected to to Rosa Parks, but also she probably knew a, a man named E. D. Nixon. So E.D. Nixon was um, a really important figure in Montgomery bus boycott. He sort of he leads the bus boycott before um, before Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. takes over. And also, I found that another Clotilda survivor named Como um, was living directly op- opposite the Dexter Parsonage, which was, was the home of the Kings, Dr. Martin Luther King and his wife Coretta Scott King, um, during the Montgomery bus boycott. So these geographical connections, but also direct connections to the civil rights movement. And of course, with Matilda McCrea as well, the fact that she she's a woman ahead of her time who goes to the Dallas County Courthouse to demand, a, demand um, reparations, which is the space where some of voting rights campaigners go to demand their voting rights. So that's sort of uh, towards the, 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 those connections are sort of towards the end of the Clotilda survivors' lives. Um, and, and I want to uh, pick up on sort of what happens towards the earlier part of their lives. So they arrive in, in, in Alabama. Um, it is, you know, months before the Civil War begins. Um, and you note in the book that actually, um, although the Civil War is, is, is quite disruptive generally, that for many of the Clotilda survivors, there's, there isn't a uh, direct impact, although there were a few who, um, I believe you, you said, um, served in the Union Army towards the very, very end of the, of the war. Um, but what about Reconstruction and, and, and the emergence of, of Jim Crow? What is happening um, for the Clotilda survivors as they are um, they, they have this really rapid transition from freedom in 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 Rita or uh, freedom in in um, uh, in Dahomey and then enslavement in in Alabama and then freedom again in this really rapid period. How does that transition happen in the late nineteenth century? Yeah, so they endure five years of slavery. So from eighteen sixty to eighteen sixty five, they're not they're not freed until the Union Army basically conquers. You know, wins the war, um, but the, the material circumstances don't change very much. So those who are sent to the Cotton Belt of Central Alabama are still trapped on the Cotton Belt of Central Alabama. So they're they're working as um, you know they're, they're tenant farmers really, they're, or they're they're sharecroppers. So they they having to work for a share of the crop that they grow. They're bound to the land, and there's there's no economic independence. And so they're they're really still imprisoned. Um, and those who are, who were sent to Mobile, they they work for a wage for the the Mayer brothers. Uh, so they work in the sawmills. You know they're working to earn a very nominal wage, and they they try to use that money to save to go home. But of course they they need far too much money. And some of them you know, have children during slavery, so they would 
they would need to pay to take their children too. And some of them marry American men and women, so it's impossible for them to to go home. Uh, so their circumstances don't change. And of course, there's the, I mean, the, the Mobile community actually manages to vote. In fact, actually, Katilda survivors throughout Alabama managed to vote, but their voting rights are taken away. There's the, the rise of Jim Crow, which means um, de jure segregation. And, um, and so this is a community that lives through, yeah, that lives through slavery, that lives through, um, that lives through Jim Crow and also lives through the, the very beginnings of the civil rights movement as well. And in, in a lot of ways, I think this is, um, we have a lot of information about them, but this is in a lot of ways the, the a pretty standard emancipation story of uh, being freed legally, um, but then the actual circumstances uh, not changing that much. And we see this, of course, across the United States South, but we also see this in the Caribbean um, and in other parts of the Americas as well. Um, finally, I wanted to sort of talk about the present day resonances of this of this story, both in terms of the importance of the Clotilda and, and how we should be understanding the Clotilda in this history. But also, you know, we are in a moment where there is a lot of backlash against thinking about the 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 longer histories of the of the Atlantic slave trade uh, and of, uh, of transatlantic enslavement. Um, and I wonder what your sort of thoughts are about why this story matters at this particular moment. Yeah, well, we're certainly seeing an attempt to suppress the teaching of history, uh, certain histories, I should say, um, at this present moment. And so this book hopefully sort of, you know, resist that or pushes back against that because it is so important that we all reflect who, you know, whatever our backgrounds or what humanity is capable of doing. Uh, but also, I mean, it, it's also the, the, it's the ignorance as well that we're, I think we're seeing in terms of um, a lack of knowledge about um, about you know, African diasporic communities and societies that's quite horribly been leading to, to, to racist violence, so ongoing at the moment. And um, and as well, I mean, on a more personal level from the Catilda survivors descendant, you know, um, it means so much to them and just hearing how much it means to them to know where some of their ancestors came from, to be able to make those connections and to learn about the, those cultures and societies that, you know, the histories that were taken away and descendants who ask me, is there any way you can know what their, their original name was? And often the answer is no. Most of the time the answer is no. But just to, to begin to, to learn, oh, my ancestors were from Nigeria. No, you know, that that learning about having that heritage, it's, it shouldn't be a, you know, shouldn't be a rare blessing. Um, but um, sadly it is. But um, yeah, so that's just been incredible to, to you know, help a few people uncover that history and um yeah that just just the level of um the level of joy i think of, of being able to to claim that heritage has been, just been great to hear really and i think that is always a, a good place to end when we're thinking about slavery the the thing that comes through in this book is although the 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 material is incredibly difficult there is this real sense of joy of of uh of cultural survival um and the way that that the survivors are um, 
both really insistent on uh, keeping their practices and, and keeping who they are and passing that down. There's a lot in the book about the passing down of knowledge and traditions. Uh, and that comes through in this really, as you, as you said, in this really joyous, joyous way. And um, it was really, it was really great to read. So I'd like to thank Hannah for a fascinating conversation. The book again is Survivors, The Lost Stories of the Last Captives of the Atlantic Slave Trade, and it's available now from your local bookshop. I'm Christina Fryer, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Connor Boyle and edited by Tom Hall. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.